0: Meditation. Meditation. Meditation.
1: meditation. meditation. Thinking, depending
0: thinking, on the quality thinking, of my mind. You know, there's thinking, good days thinking, and bad days. Thinking, and thinking, days I mean, days, wow, feel like the sound. waterfall Sounds. of thoughts.
2: <laughs> Every now and then, a nice... Um, um, I
3: can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City Podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Melting the Ice of Anger. In this episode, we discuss what it means to melt through the isolation, insecurity, and rigid thinking that leads to anger and resentment. What would it mean to open up and be fluid with our ideas and expectations? Today we are joined by Joseph Mauricio. Joe is a longtime student of Shambhala Buddhism, as well as an author, speaker, coach, teacher, and chaplain. As the founder of LifeWork Mindfulness-based coaching services, Joe offers Buddhist and Shambhala training principles to help private and corporate clients manifest lives of dignity, sanity, and strength. Here's Joe to take away the discussion.
0: Tonight's talk is called Melting the Ice of Anger, Melting the Ice of Anger Into the Flowing Water of Freedom. And it's based on a quote by Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, the former. There's a current teacher, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, who's a high Tibetan lama, and his predecessor, who uh, died in 1987, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, was during his lifetime considered to be, I think, it's hard to quantify these things, qualify these things, but generally considered one of the highest, most realized lama. He was the teacher, to our teachers, Chunkra, Trump Rinpoche, and a direct tutor to Sakya Mipham, but also was a tutor to the Dalai Lama. And every teacher in the Tibetan tradition in that period, up until his death, studied with him or studied with someone who studied with him. He was really brilliant. And he was very rarefied because he stood six foot seven inches tall, and that's very rare in the Tibetan tradition. So he was like two Tibetans tall. <laughs> in a Tibetan and a half wide. It was amazing. And we'll get pictures of him. If you get a chance, he was beautiful. He was a beautiful, beautiful man. And he was just really long with long, long, long hair and statuesque and, and just presenting and just beautiful. And he was a wonderful poet as well as a great teacher. And he spoke beautifully. And he has a quote that I thought was really wonderful. It's, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit because I want to condense it. But the idea is what he's explaining is that mind your thoughts the very things that you think are you or maybe you don't even look at or didn't until you became a meditator and you just take for granted these things that we have in our heads that sort of allow us to look at the world and believe things about the world are they real and what are they who's generating all this These are thoughts, and these thoughts are energetic. And he said thoughts are likened to water in his beautiful analogy. And when thoughts are flowing and fluid, they're connective, they're expressive. They move back and forth, and they're completely open, like water. But when they get solid, when we get frightened, when we get angry, we shut down, the water freezes. We shut down our heart, and we freeze that water into these hard ideas, these concepts that then alienate us. So water goes from a fluid connective thing to a hard delineating thing. Our ideas do that too. Our thoughts do that. We have thoughts that are open and we listen to people and we're responsive to them and we kind of wake up and there's something really invigorating about that, of being around people that wake us up and are interesting to us and we're interesting to them. And there's a kind of camaraderie and communication, and then something goes wrong, we feel isolated and insecure, and something triggers us inside, and we shut down, and then all of a sudden those thoughts become very rigid. They become a little bit like, well, what do I expect from a party like this? What, What do I expect from these kinds of people? And all of a sudden we separate ourselves out, we become very rigid. And a lot of people live with that rigidness that religiosity, all the time, right? They have these isms and these ideas. Well, that person's not a very good Buddhist. (laughs) That's a beautiful one. I love that one. What kind of Buddhist are you? (laughs) Like, what would the Buddha think? The Buddha reformed the whole religious systems of his time because of that kind of crap, you know? And he got people to sit and wake up and pay attention and really begin to wake their world up, one breath at a time, you know, with what's real and what's direct and what's important. But many, many years later, right, we kind of turn that into an ism. And now there's a whole way that you have to be a Buddhist. And why do you eat meat? And why do you blah, blah, blah? And how come we don't do this? And we should do that. Instead of actually listening, beginning to understand, beginning to open up and be fluid with our ideas. We get rigid with our ideas. Obviously, there are people that do that politically and socially, economically, create barriers and boundaries. There's this fluid communication to people who are like them, but then it gets very rigid when they have to go too far uptown or something, right, (laughs) (laughs) in some other situation, and all of a sudden it becomes a little like, hmm, we start thinking through our concepts. <laughs> Jilgokinsu Rinpoche said, the heat of compassion melts the solid ice of hatred and returns it to the fluid water of communication. heat of compassion actually melts these rigid concepts, these ideas. If you're fighting with someone you love, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> it's probably really important if you are. And you probably don't. You love this when you argue with somebody that you become like this great lawyer that you didn't even know you could be. Like, well, you said I remember. All of a sudden, right? I can't remember. I can't remember to shave. But I all of a sudden remember something my partner said. You know, on February thirteenth. Exactly. You said. And we kind of build a whole case. You ever do that? You can't just say, look, <laughs> clean the dishes. But you've got to say, you know, you never clean the dishes, and you also don't do this, and you don't do that. And we create these whole worlds. What is another person supposed to do? Are they supposed to respond to that and go, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for telling me all these things I did wrong, and specifically when I did them wrong. <laughs> and now I feel... Terrible about myself. And, and, and the whole reason I did these things are because I felt bad about myself. And now I feel worse about myself. And uh, now I hate you. <laughs> and communication kind of falls apart, right? Doesn't it? You know? When you're arguing with somebody you love, it's really good and instructional to remember that you love them. <laughs> to remember that you love them. And if you were to do that and kind of remember some cute part of them or some part of them that you adore or experience that you love, you might actually be able to melt your anger or that separation or your self-righteous indignation over who did the garbage and actually learn to communicate. That's the key. It's really not about giving up and letting other people walk all over us. Compassion is communication. Communication is key. But communication implies, here's the scary part, the fine print. Communication implies that we change. It's not just like I tell you the way it is. And then you go, okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a life coach. (laughs) People want me to tell them what to do. I love it when my partner goes, Okay, coach. (laughs) You're off the clock now. Okay? (laughs) You're off the clock now. We're having a conversation. There's two people here. Although I try to do that as well. And the coaching is more effective if you speak person to person. If you try to tell somebody what to do or try to create a situation where they have to do what you tell them to do, then... Eh, maybe they'll do it, but won't there be a little bit of blowback, you know? There's two kinds of leadership that we talk about. Yeah, I'm involved in a lot of leadership situations in Shambhala. So two kinds of leadership that we talk about in Shambhala are lids versus flowers. Um, lids are, is the idea of leadership that, like, I'm the boss... You do what I say. What part of that don't you understand? I actually worked for <laughs> worked for this guy um, in the restaurant. Was in the restaurant business. Restaurant business is filled with lots of not enlightened leadership. And it's really interesting. This is like we're going to eat the food. And you think the people are all like, let us prepare food for the masses. Let us nurture people. (laughs) I have gone to cooking school. Let me, you know, show my art to these people and share my heart. No. 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 It's, no. No. There may be three restaurants like that out of the 700,000 in New York. I don't know, you know, and they're probably vegan. But... (laughs) And this is my concept. Now, okay, compassion. Just like melt that. All right. Just melt that. Yeah. People don't beat vegetables up when they pull them out of the ground. You know, it's very interesting that a lot of the cruelty that happens in the animal, you know, slaughter business in the sort of meat industry, and you've probably heard about it and you're probably aware of it, right? These like underground videos that have been taken and stuff like that of really horrible cruelty. But it's interesting because you're in an environment where you're killing things. I'm not talking about meat or not meat. I've eaten meat. I'm trying not to, but I'll probably go back to it. I'm not talking about that so much as I'm talking about the idea of perpetuating cruelty. And all of a sudden that cruelty becomes part of who we are. And then that cruelty starts to become part of our families and our lives and our societies, that kind of thing. It's structures that create that are these ideas of lids. You have a boss, and the boss holds things in place. It's not that the boss says, oh, let's find compassionate ways to kill the animals, or let's find good ways to create cigarettes for people. It's the boss needs to cover their own. Financial butt, and out of fear that somebody else is going to take their market share, right? They clamp down. They clamp down on their world. Well, this also happens in beautiful environments and lovely not for profits trying to change the world. If a boss is frightened, if they're scared, if they doubt their own basic goodness, they're likely to project different things on different people. And of course, those people are going to act this way. And I have to be like this to circumvent that or to cut that off. Does that make sense? The idea of lids holds people in place. It holds people in place because I'm the boss. And you're not going to go any further. And maybe I can do it in a benign way if I'm really delicate with it. I can make you feel like you've got the whole world ahead of you. But really, you're not going to advance any further then you're going to advance. Does that make sense? The other way of looking at leadership in a more relaxed way is this idea of flowers. That instead of the lid, the leader then becomes like the sun and encourages growth, growth from all the people involved. That begins to look at their charges in business, look at their charges in your family, look at yourself. From GHP, great human potential, to actually encourage the best in you rather than the worst in you. Imagine if you had that fight with tonight. Go home and try it. Have a fight with somebody you live with. And I'm kidding. But when it happens again, when there's that altercation or difficulty, think about the words you're using and are you promoting their great human potential? Or are you shutting them down or making them only defensive and antagonistic? And I think in relationships, a lot of people bring out the worst in each other and stay there. You know? They walk in the room and expect the fight, and they get the fight. Does that make sense? Compassion, on the other hand, allows us to relax and open. Relax and find different ways to communicate and open up with each other to create less of a hierarchical structure that holds things in place, and more of an open, living, giving, communicative network that is perhaps more horizontal in nature. Did you have a question? Did you want to buy something? <laughs> Sold. Does anybody have any questions? So right, there are two truths, right? So there's there's absolute truth, and there's conventional truth. And in the conventional world that we live in, and most of my experience in life, has indicated to me that the world can be a pretty horrible place where we're capable of incredibly bad things. That's based upon my own experiences in places like Iraq and elsewhere. Uh, how do you reconcile that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because what is... So are are you... You were in Iraq? Not as a soldier, but yeah. Okay. But you, I think we all have some notion of self-defense, what that's like, right? If actually people are trained as soldiers or as correspondents in the field or... In situations where they're actually in danger, I don't think they're trained to not pay attention, right? I don't think we're trained to sort of go into our own mind and create stories based on our childhood experience, you know? I think people are trained to better protect themselves by paying attention to what's actually happening. So by opening up this idea of compassion being communication, it doesn't mean we're becoming more victimized, more simple, or more you know vulnerable. We're actually creating a situation where we're more awake and more aware. And I think people will say, I don't know what the statistics are, but I have often heard it said, and I'm sure you've heard it said, that one of the, the ways to combat violence is to address it directly. You know, and to be to be open with it, so that you actually kind of minimize the possibility of a kind of violent confrontation or something like that, um, The world is a tough place. My recommendation always is that the more we can pay attention, the more we could communicate, the more we can be open, the uh safer we are. How does that sound? yeah. Okay. Yes
2: Thank you Um, And I just Just from what you said I'm just curious if you could explain Further what you meant by Addressing
0: violence Yeah I mean I I, want to just back off that a little bit Because I'm not an expert at it And I don't want people to go out of here And then you know Get into trouble Oh is that a gun But I do think that if I think that if we're open with each other, you know, if you're, if you're open with people, that the chances are better that you find a nonviolent way of dealing with the issue. Does that make sense? Now, if somebody is actually confronting you with a weapon, is that what you're thinking of?
2: No. Uh, no, I was really curious what you meant. I, ha- I have a great example that I thought was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, years ago, this huge guy was hit by a very small guy punched him in the face right in front of my friend and the huge guy who could have destroyed him just looked at him and said "ouch." You know, and I just thought that was so wonderful. Yeah. But uh, but I'd love more examples of what you mean by, you know, addressing violence because it's a tough thing, it's a really tough thing. For
0: it me. is a tough thing. There's a story that we heard and I'm again, I, don't try this at home kind of story, but it illustrates the point. Trump Bouchet, who was pretty fearless and Crippled, I don't know if people know he was kind of partially paralyzed from a car accident, and he was out um, at a at a at a pretty rough bar out in the country in, in Colorado, and the fact that he wasn't, I think, fit in socially there back in the seventies was kind of pretty clear. And he had gotten into kind of a somebody was starting with him, starting a little something with him, and the guy came out and apparently had a gun and and Rinpoche looked at him, and, and he pointed his finger and went, choo, choo, <laughs> and started giggling, and, and the guy didn't know what to do. <laughs> so to some extent that he was addressed and that there was this humor. And there are people that tell the story. I'm an attendant, so this, is, this story has gone down in legend. Like, oh, my God. Like, the attendants were, like, freaking out you know, literally freaking out. And this is before cell phone days, or I think they would have been calling. The guy just (laughs) went, you're crazy, you know, and kind of walked away. I probably wasn't going to shoot him anyway. But there was a sense that if people present violence, that they actually, in a way, are expecting violence in return. You know, it's like they're probably doing it because they think it's going to come at them, where in the past it's come at them. If you break that momentum then you're actually kind of changing the course of something, not recommending that you do this. And if you're a potential victim of violence, take care of yourself. That's what I'm talking about. But on a larger, more theoretical level, if you're you're perpetuating violence on someone else simply because it was perpetuated on you and now you're stressed and unhappy with yourself and so you're laying it on somebody else, that's something you have the control to begin to wake up and stop. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. And if you're the person that could sit there and look at it and go, what are you doing here? Is this really me? Who are you talking to now? Does, does that make sense? Yeah. You know the old thing of you get beat up. At, I talked about this in my last talk last month. But, you know, you get beat up. At, my dad used to get beat up, not beat up at work, but it was tough at work, you know. And he'd come home and just be raging with the family, right? We had all sip straight (laughs) so that he could feel powerful, you know. And it's just like handing that aggression. Now, he learned. He understood that at some point. He quit drinking and went through sobriety and kind of woke up and sort of got that. But it's like like a lineage of violence that we passed down from day one, from one probably reptile time, you know, or before, where we're constantly acting on fear with aggression, constantly acting on fear with aggression, we can actually change that. We can change that pattern now. Yes?
3: We were talking about how obligations and commitments to others uh, can start to become draining uh-huh. and cause shutdown. I was wondering um, what kind of tips or words of wisdom you had about that. That what? what? What kind of words of wisdom you had about like obligations that start to become draining?
0: That start to become draining, yeah. I think taking care of yourself is the most important thing. And really being awake to the idea of, if are you losing yourself or are you giving yourself away? Like, at what point can you create boundaries that keep yourself strong? And how can you communicate those boundaries, right? So the two ways that we don't do it is we, we overcommit and then we resent. <clears throat> and those are both things that add to the draining. And those are, all, those are both our thing, right? It's kind of like, can you put the boundaries there in the first place, and if you can't, can you then communicate does, is that helpful? Yeah. It's very easy to sort of blame it on other people when we think we're helping the world or we're helping other people. But if we're actually draining and giving ourselves away, then we're not much help, actually. You know? So it's very important to keep our own strength. Who's next? You? Yeah. Um, what was really impressive tonight for me was not the... Um, the f- the aggression or the anger, but the opportunity to make contact with somebody. To, and that seemed to be, for me, what the message was tonight. Um, and I think important for me is that I realized by myself I don't exist, but with somebody else I do. And it's really important to have someone to turn to. Um, and that seemed to be the situation for me tonight with this mm. guy. Yeah? <laughs> ah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Do you have a question? I'm sorry. Do you um, have a question? Yeah, that's okay. Uh, no, it's fine to just share. And that was beautiful. Thank you. I can't think of a specific question. I'd like to hear your response to what I said. To what you said. Well, when you feel comfortable, right, you can open up. When you have somebody else that helps you feel comfortable, it's easier to open up. The question is, you didn't say this, but then I'm sort of feeding a little bit on the previous question about boundaries and things like that, is why can't we just open up without another person helping us? You know, And maybe you can. You know, Maybe you can. But it's also like interesting, can we do that with ourselves? Can we just be open with ourselves? Can we be the person we're looking for for those of us that are looking for somebody special in our life? You know, can we actually be loving and compassionate to ourselves, or do we constantly need another person to activate that? You know.
2: Um, yeah. So, what if you're in a fight? What, what? Not a fight, but someone's angry towards you. Like, it could be a sister or something like that. And just hypothetically. Or a friend and um, that person, like if you showed compassion telling that person, or you you don't feel angry towards that person, but that person has a lot of anger towards you and and you try to show it's like you show mm-hmm. compassion and all that jazz, and it's like <laughs> and it's like, what do you do after a point that you gave that person all you could, but do you just wait for that person to come back to you later? I don't know how to like to say it, but do you wait for that person to come back to you later and then forgive that person if you kind of already forgiven that person? Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Yeah? Yeah. I don't know if it's... Are you clear. talking about your sister?
2: <laughs> Actually, no, I'm talking about friend. Okay. A friend that's like a sister. Okay. Like a sister. Yeah. yeah. But I
0: mean, I mean, that's the point. It's a long history, right? Yeah. And it's deep and it goes into different things. Right. So it's always going to change and have different permutations. I think what happens when we become frigid, when we freeze with that, you know, anger, we think this is the way it is. Right. This is never going to change. This is always going to be this way. Right. Actually, what we realize with compassion is that everything changes. Right, You know, it, it, things yeah. flow and they change. I also think that it's really amazing what you can do with just a smile and a look, more than we think. When you're angry at somebody, you don't want to do that. You, know? right, yeah, you don't yeah. want to see them. Yeah. But you could just check in with people. And that that's an undervalued thing that has much more power than we think. But what's an overvalued thing are long descriptors and explanations of what we did wrong or something. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, That's an overused thing. Because that just keeps the wheel spinning sometimes. Sometimes it's good just to check in and see if things move. That's not super satisfying. Mm-hmm. But I can't fix it, right? Because you, you guys have to work that out. But right. if you begin to see that she's got the potential and that you're worth it and, and that things could change, it could change the way you communicate.
2: Interesting. Great. Thank you. Sure. Okay.
4: Okay, because she says sister, so I kind of have like a sister, and like she used to be angry all the time. Um, so when I started learning about compassion, was like um, two years ago,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and what I learned is that um, you kind of have to have compassion, but no expectations, because I was kind of like expecting something from her all the time. Right. So I was there, like waiting, like oh, maybe if I'm compassionate, you know, like things are gonna change, you know um, things are going to change for me, you know, how I see things, but, and things did change for her over time. She saw me as, like, a more compassionate person, and she could come to me, um, but yeah, like, I feel like there shouldn't be expectations for that person to, you know, be like, oh, now I'm, like, I love you, and all this stuff, you know, because there they have to see themselves and be compassionate towards themselves yes. first. Yes. And then they will come to you, and you're kind of teaching them slowly but surely. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, I feel like when you brought that up, like, that's what it made me think of. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, trust people. Yeah. And give the, let them have the chance to come to them. And, you know, a lot of how we react to each other is like little children, Or like little animals, right? Frightened animals. I think there's a lot of wisdom to animals. And you, you can't demand an attention, right? Or you can't demand obedience from an animal. You have to win their respect. And you have to let them come to you. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not equating your friend with an animal. But we operate on that level. We go from intelligent beings to, like, vicious little wounded dogs, you know? And we get very solid, you know? Since actually, if we could actually treat each other with kindness and love and respect on some level, even if we're angry, you know, even if we're angry. Just go ahead.
1: Well, first of all, I yeah. didn't think I was shy, but now I'm feeling shy. <laughs> 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 but I want to say thank you for all the laughs. I've, yeah. I've had a great time. And I, I had two images that came to mind when you were talking, and then also when the other woman was talking about... Um, violence. And that is, one is kind of the idea of childbirth. I've had two mm-hmm. kids and I progressed very quickly and I couldn't have any pain, whatever. And, you know, it's so interesting because you're, you're in pain when you're having a baby. And so you brace against that, you know, you tighten up, you tense up and it makes it worse because then you can't breathe and you can't. And that's kind of, uh, I think like a metaphor for how we are in arguments sometimes is, you know, kind of getting ourselves ready for, um, having things bounce off of us or, or attacking back or, um, and the other image I had is, um, the idea of like, if you're drowning and you're, the more you fight, you know, you're, I always remember learning as a kid, like, you know, don't just float and try and relax. And, and the more you push against Mm -hmm. it, you'll exhaust yourself and you know, you won't get saved. And so that like, in terms of your friend, I was thinking, you know, the idea of kind of just letting go a little bit and and not trying so hard to like fix it or engage or do you know what I mean? Like maybe like just kind of let go and give a little space or something and then maybe, you know, the relationship will be saved.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to uh, just end with a bow and thank you all.
3: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.